Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Michael Keynes, an editor at the TLS, is here with me. Welcome, Michael. Thanks, Alex. Hi, how are you? I'm very well. I'm I'm recently returned from the mountains of Switzerland, or rather, actually, the shores of Lake Geneva. Oh, my word. What on earth have you been up to? <laughs> I went to the Jan Michalski Foundation, which is near Morges, which is near Geneva, and I attended the Bibliotopia Festival, and my oh. part in it was to be interviewing Lauren Groff, but there were all sorts of fabulous writers there including Marza Mengiste, um, Philippe Sands who gave this wonderful performance based on his book The Last Colony with a pianist and an actor uh, and it was just fantastic and also gave me a chance to practice my very poor French because it was a kind of bilingual conference so sometimes when there was an event in French but you could have English mm-hmm. headphones I I eschewed the headphones and tried to follow what was going on with just went with with the flow and how did that go did you improve over the course of the festival over over the course of the weekend well uh, you know maybe maybe not so (laughs) that's good that's great (laughs) (laughs) maybe is maybe is something I, I have to say if you ever get a chance to which you should you go to this festival it is in this most incredible very modernist beautiful kind of spare almost brutalist building on the side of a hill it's absolutely wonderful with these fantastic artworks that sounds worth the trip it it really it really was but I I have to say at one point I found myself looking at a, a collection of rather kind of beautiful sort of breeze blocks with some kind of weights on it and I thought this is definitely an artwork and took a picture of it and then the next day I realized that there were things that they were putting up to hold the tents down so it wasn't an artwork Ah. it was in fact an entirely but maybe that's just art as form and function and beauty though I think that's absolutely the right interpretation (laughs) and what about you how have you been oh I've just been hanging around boring old London trying to improve my English but it's not working um (laughs) I did have the uh, quite a you know, fun little adventure last week. I went and saw a collection of 
all the Shakespeare folios from the 17th century that will only interest, obviously, Shakespeare nerds and biblio nerds and that kind of thing. But it's very unusual to get them all together in one place. They're all being offered for sale um, by a London bookseller for a combined price of, let's say, around £10 million. Oh, my Um, goodness. And I think a Shakespeare expert who is really committed to seeing your folio could go around the world and see... I don't know, 100 odd copies or something like that. But for anyone else, any mere mortal, it's quite difficult. So I enjoyed that. That, that was quite fun. And what was it like? I mean, how were they displayed? How did, what, what was it like sort of physically seeing them? The first folio actually lives in its own sort of bomb proof case, as far as I can tell. And this particular copy of the folio is almost complete it's got a few preliminary pages that are facsimiles but mostly it's all there it's all clean uh, it's got lovely kind of binding and the same sort of goes for the other three folios they're really um, beautiful copies and did you feel this kind of sense of wonder and sort of presence uh, not exactly what I expected I mean I, the thing is I have seen folios before but individually Uh, different copies in different states because really no one is all the same as far as I understand it you know it's printed over such a long period it changed in the um, print shop but I did sort of feel there was something extraordinary in seeing this book evolve over time you know the first one is 1623 so there's an anniversary for the folio this year obviously Um, and it goes through to the 1680s so you're seeing a kind of change in his reputation the the fourth folio is the biggest of the books the sort of grandest of the books although it's not the the sort of rarest or you know the most impressive in other ways but you did see this sort of story evolving so you could see really um a kind of Shakespeare afterlife and the, just the beginnings of, you know, this uh, incredible reputation, of course, that Shakespeare enjoys today. Wow, that's that's fascinating. Well, it's it's going on sale presumably quite soon. Yes, I think they're all on sale now. The first folio alone is, I think, about six point two five million, and I'm pretty sure they'll all sell and the collection will be will be broken up. So it's an interesting moment mm. to see all of these together right now they'll be appearing at various book fairs i expect unless they're they're bought first i fear we may just have to scrape the funds together to buy the catalogue mayn't we i think maybe that's what we should do yes <laughs> or maybe just look it up online should we do that yeah we'll do that okay. um, we'll do that uh, tell us what's in the what's in the paper this week well, once again, I, I, you know, I can't deny this is a week for incredible variety. That seems to be something the TLS specialises in. Uh, we have this um, absolutely intriguing memoir, essentially, opening the paper by Jane Maas. It's a memoir of Philip Roth and about how he was haunted in his life and his fiction by a student romance. I will say no more about it than that. It is a really intriguing uh, little piece of, I don't know, Rothiana, if that's what you call it. And, you know, a great thing to have. Now we've had two biographies of the man already. We have Catherine Sutherland writing about the Porter sisters, pioneering historical novelists. Who, and the, uh, the book is a, is by Devoni Loza. That's it? right. A, a, yes. A, yes. A, a friend of the podcast. I can't wait that's, to read it. That's right. It's a terrific book and terrific sort of review. Really interesting. Right next to Michelle Roberts writing about Georges Sand. So we have plenty of um, literary history and literature in this week's issue. We have David Throsby talking about economics. We have an extract from David Baddiel's new book about being a Jew through or despite atheism. As you say, and that's only some of the things. I mean, there's that's awful only some lots of the things. Yeah, could there's talk an awful about lot more, in this week. That's it. There's quite a lot going on. So I think it's really uh, you know, enjoyable, fun issue. Well, thank you so much. Coming up on this week's show, Lamorna Ash on Max Porter's tale of teenage angst 
And will Jonathan Taylor be seduced by story? We find out. Deepen your understanding and enhance your appreciation of the world's greatest civilizations with Martin Randall Travel, the most innovative and influential specialist cultural tour operator. Join like-minded travellers on meticulously planned tours for small groups covering destinations in the UK, Europe, North Africa, the Middle East, Asia and the Americas. Expert speakers carefully selected for their specialist knowledge stimulate the imagination and enliven the intellect. Celebrate privileged moments in unforgettable places. In Rome, experience the splendour of the Sistine Chapel on a private after-hours visit. In Venice, St Mark's Basilica in similar quietude. A passion for excellence and a dedication to enrichment. Book today at martinrandall.com. Still to come on the show, Jonathan Taylor on the uses and abuses of narrative. But first, it's been eight years since Max Porter's debut novel, Grief is the Thing with Feathers, appeared on the scene and was thereafter made into a stage show by the playwright Enda Walsh, starring Killian Murphy as the Ted Hughes scholar whose mourning for his wife is interrupted by the arrival of a large crouching crow. In 2019, it was followed by Lanny, in which a forest spirit called Dead Papa Toothwort accompanied a young boy through his semi-rural adventurings. Now comes Shy. Once again, a novel in which mysticism blends with the everyday, this time at a residential school for violent young men. The writer Lamorne Ash has reviewed the book in this week's paper, and we're delighted that she joins us now. Hello, Lamorna. Hello, morning. This is such an intriguing book, but in terms of Max Porter's work thus far his novels thus far the book I didn't mention was the death of Francis Bacon which seems slightly out of the flow of what seems now like a trilogy does shy seem like it follows on from grief is the thing with feathers and Lanny I think it does and I almost feel you could trace the character through where Lanny much like shy but in a younger less inhibited way is at one with nature, is outside of um, the ordinary sphere of society, somehow can commune as a kind of middle spirit figure, quite like dead Papa Tootworth. And you feel that with Shy, this is like the 15-year-old incarnation of that, where he can no longer happily sit in this in-between world. He's thrust into the challenges of being older, of puberty, of testosterone, and that makes it much harder for him to navigate both the natural world and the world of humanity the men that he's around and I suppose with grief was a thing with feathers again there are these he does children absolutely beautifully Max Porter and I think the voice of the boys which is these three monologues that happen in grief was a thing with feathers they similarly have this natural ability and closer relationship with mysticism in the natural world than than other people it's funny isn't it because grief is a thing with feathers because so much of the character, obviously there's the crow, but we see it through the widower. And sometimes you can almost forget about these two boys who are also in the novel, but it is they are very young boys. And you see it as much from their point of view, don't you? Yes, you definitely do. And I feel like 
Max Bortix, who's an editor at Granta First, has this like amazing eye for how to do structure and how to bring readers in. And I feel like through having the boys who more naturally would accept this strange version of grief that comes in as this crow from Ted Hughes' Crow Poems, in a way that gently lowers the reader in to then accept the fact that the, the father too must take this figure that usually would be created by a child to get through grief. Um, and so through the three of them, you're then able to really take seriously the idea of Crow. And I suppose the difference, what I was thinking about with my review is the way that Porter's relationship with animals and with, with animism shifts over the course of the books that in Lanny, again, you get dead Papa Tootworth, who you take very seriously. He is a literal character within the story. And with Shy, there's animals, but they're more peripheral and they have this strangeness. And, and in a similar way, it's the natural world that might save people, that might bring them back from the brink, from the, the difficulties that the human relationships and humanity and this moment of challenge for young men uh, imposes on Shy. Yes, yes. Lamona, um, just with that interest in mysticism and, and sort of masculinity in mind, are there other writers who come to mind or that this particular book brought to mind? Yeah, definitely. So I think I was thinking a lot about Ben Lerner's The Topeka School, mm -hmm. because similarly, both of them are set in the 90s. And the two authors, who I guess are equivalent in other ways to these sort of big male writers at the moment, um, were teenagers themselves in the 90s. And there is this sense of trying to return and think about masculinity then at a quite a different point from now, where a lot of our sense of misogyny was more below the surface. It wasn't spoken about as much as it is with teenagers today. Um, and similarly, in uh, the Topeka school, there's he chooses to have multiple narrative voices. So there's uh, the character of Adam, that's sort of a version of Ben Lerner. And then there's his psychiatrist parents who have this distance and are able to question the ways that the boys behave. And then there's this strange figure called Darren, who I really think is quite similar to Shy, who, again, is dreamlike, I think has um, is possibly has um, difficulties in understanding what's happening around him and is, is slightly taken advantage of by the other boys. And similarly, there's there's actually quite parallel scenes where in um, in Shy, you get this moment of Shy failing at an interact, a sort of sexual interaction with a girl and it all going wrong. And his, his feelings get transmuted. I think it says at some point, shame turns to rage when it's not supposed to. And that happens with this figure, Darren, in the Topeka school as well. There's almost that a moment of comedy there, which I mean, there, there shouldn't be because it, it's a horrible scene uh, in lots of ways. That that moment where, as you say, Shai is having a sexual interaction with a girl that's going. He's remembering what happened before he he ended up in this this residential school, uh, and it's going kind of well, and then it goes badly, and then he gives her. And I'm almost laughing saying it. He gives her a dead leg and she's just completely horrified. And he's like, but we did it all the time at school. And he's suddenly a, a, a kind of rivalrous teenager again, rather than this man who was wanting to have a sort of young man's brilliant sexual experience. And there's almost a moment of comedy there in what is in many ways is a funny book, but but also isn't. Yes, and I think that's the real generosity of Max Porter. He loves his characters. You really feel that. And so in them, there's you're able to recognise the naivety of it, but the fact it also has consequences. When a little kid gives another kid a dead leg, it's just playful. They don't, they don't have that capacity for violence. Whereas when Shy does it, it still comes from this place of naivety. Mm. And, and I think humiliation as well, that 
I suppose we talk about this so much with young people now of at what point do they have accountability and yet who's teaching them the way to behave with one another and these are particularly with shy's group drunk kids kids taking drugs getting into situations but they're still naive they're still that almost like pre-lapsarian sense of them trying it all out and then being horrified and he doesn't in that scene it's that he almost steps out of himself and says, how have I got to this side of the room ah what can I do to make this go away I'm gonna give her a dead leg mm. and yet for her mm. it, it's um, and we don't get to see really from her side but we can feel it that for her it probably was it might have felt like this violent encounter this shock so this is the kind of thing that he's done and it is always this this series of events where he just suddenly almost sort of freaks out uh, for a moment. Oh, so it's the story of Shy, the titular character, who's ended up at this school called the Last Chance School, again, kind of slightly humorously. Uh, but it really is his last chance, isn't it? He's just done this series of things and withdrawn from his mother, his stepfather, any kind of helpful teacher or or helpful adult friends that he has. And he's just in this kind of cycle of self-sabotaging, isn't he? He is, yes. And again, this is Porter being great at structure. He sets the book up and this is this doesn't, I don't think, give anything away, but Shy is leaving last chance at three in the morning. He's got a bag of flint rocks in his backpack. And so he's heading towards this lake. And so we have this real sense of what the trajectory is, that there might be no way out of it. And I suppose the book then, whilst retrospectively building up our sense of what happened to him beforehand, bringing in these other voices in this very portery way of distinct typography. But at the same time, we know that he's just walking towards the lake and something will have to intervene or not intervene. But I think whilst reading it, having reread Porter's previous books, you always have a sense something will intervene. I don't think he's a writer who wants to do damage or permanent damage to his characters. It's so funny. I mean, I read it, and at the moment where he the the lake comes into view to which he's walking, the penny suddenly dropped for me. And I don't know whether it's because I was so captivated by his voice. I, I, I missed that now because I was actually thinking, why has he got a rucksack full of stones? Do you think I'm just a very bad reader, Lamorne? You can't really ask that, answer that. <laughs> yeah, I think you are. No. I think, <laughs> but then... I think you could say the same about me that I in, uh, instantly was like, oh, here we go. It's a Virginia Woolf moment. Mm. Um, and maybe that says something that my pessimistic reading of it or, or cynical reviewer head where you're thinking, I mean, I know that I read in a completely different way when I'm reviewing books. And I tend to have to read them twice and probably would then read it again differently a year on. But I have that sense of being like, what's the, the kind of, um, tectonics happening here like what's the architecture of the plot okay rocks backpack I know <laughs> and, and also the other thing we should say yeah. about it uh, at a very sort of basic level is it's such a short book as all his work has been that you know that he ca can't take very long to get to whatever the reason for the rocks in the backpack were you're not really cynical I think I was just being a bit dopey because the minute that the lake did come up interview I immediately thought obviously Virginia Woolf it's a sort of horrible horrible moment of jeopardy isn't it in the in the uh in the narrative yeah it definitely is and I think again that's where Porter wants to go and I suppose this might also say more about me as a reader but 
knowing that that was going to happen and even it is this descent this like going down through the fields to get there it has this extraordinary ending that the last few scenes I think are the strongest in the book but I still wanted more and I almost wish that he had begun it earlier or ended it later that it's it's so perfectly done it's so short it's so slight that I think there's more room for I, th- I said this in the review but I do think it's his mm. best character that he's done it's and funny I think you should I'm... say that I did, I, did, I did think I mean Alex mentions that um there was a stage adaptation of grief is the thing that says and I just thought it sounded like this takes place over from your review I gather it's a sort of concise it's three hours isn't it it's an intense yeah. piece of action and that's another aspect of his writing I suppose if it's not entirely unique it's quite distinctive to want to do that it's almost like a kind of odd sort of scarred sort of script for something that you could see put on stage here again. Yeah. Lamorna, you describe the book as polyphonic and there are other voices, like Shai's mother, stepfather, his teachers, the counsellors. There's even a documentary, a voiceover of a documentary that's being made about the school. Um, and it's typographical the way he indicates their interventions in the narrative, isn't it? It is, yes. And... <sighs> I don't know if this is me being I for me it doesn't work as well as the rest of the story mm. because there's something limited about those and I think and perhaps it's because I see that form of experimentation so much that seems to be to experiment you have to do typographic innovation set bits of your book up like poetry and yet there's something that it's lacking the density or the richness of poetry not even narrative poetry but that feeling that there's under underneath feelings happening I think that often here the the interventions are like yeah this moment of another voice but nothing around it and I and again I feel like if those have been expanded because I suppose the polyphonic quality is different with both Lanny and Grief as a thing with Feathers that they're strong monologues and you feel each of those characters each person has a richness in in those books whereas here they come in momentarily they disappear away again like the documentary I don't really have a sense of what last chance is like I know that that too is coming to a close it's probably going to close down it's probably going to get bought by someone rich there's this you know that political sense that that Max Porter always has and it's the 1990s isn't it there is this historical setting to it. So you have this kind of idea of property development that's going to happen. And and as almost being on the cusp as a country of all that kind of exploding and all these things like progressive educational institutions being hugely under threat. But it's never overtly said. I mean, we yes. are in Shai's head and we're thinking through his eyes and mind and memories and sensations but but it's still there isn't it and I suppose that's that's why Porter put it into that kind of documentary sort of style it had to be something just slightly different but but I it's almost are you saying it sort of breaks into the idea of this being a single consciousness yes possibly I think it's that and sometimes it's done again this beautiful quite slight sleight of hand where you get there's another character I believe he's called Benny uh, and these other boys who are there and you get the sense that some of them you understand why they've ended up there that some of them have had real trauma um, that some of them one of them has uh, experienced a lot of racial abuse um, some of them have difficult families and that Shai he has a stepfather and a mum who are really loving and you have this sense of how have you ended up in this group like what what's happened to you and that I think that's when it's done really nicely but again you almost want to see all these boys in in 
direct contact with each other, which I think that uh, to go back to Ben Lerner, he does really beautifully of the ways the the ways the boys egg each other on, the ways that um, uh, power and race and class play out amongst young boys. I think would be really interesting to see. I was also thinking on the '90s bit. Something I love in the book is uh, that Shy is obsessed with drum and bass and jungle, and I had a really good time listening to the songs that he played. And I think Toby took the bit out, but I talked about. Um, origin unknowns valley of the shadows which is this brilliant jungle song that has loads of samples in it and i was thinking that actually sort of what max porter is doing here with these different textual bits coming in of other voices is a bit like samples in the music that shy listens to that um come in and sort of shift the tonality of of the story or of the music in, in the case of jungle and toby is the editor isn't he i and a frequent guest on this podcast yes I'm going to to bring in a bit of sort of extra literary kind of knowledge here because I interviewed uh, Max Porter quite recently about the book and he said that he it's his most edited book. He edited it over and over and over again and the last time he edited it, he was listening to 170 beats per minute music just to make sure the and I totally got that when he said it I mean that's it that's going the extra mile as it were but but um I I totally understood it because for me the rhythm of the book was incredibly powerful oh I love that yeah that makes total sense to me as well he also said by the way just I'm just throwing this in there that he had originally conceived of the project in a in a loose sense it had started life Shai was not a boy in the 1990s. He was a medieval manuscript illustrator. He did a year of medieval research. Then he decided that wasn't that he wanted to change. So then he had a Victorian setting for the book. And those things he was telling me might, you know, that that sort of work, that framing and setting might go somewhere else into some other kind of project, but it's the same character throughout. Uh, so this kind of, very evocative 1990s setting also could have been another time, another place. Isn't that interesting? That's really interesting. Did he say why he then ended up migrating into the 1990s? Well, we talked a bit about the the, the sort of this particular historical setting. I mean, one of the things was that, you know, it, as you mentioned, it, it was when he was that age. So it was very familiar to him, although he said he wasn't, you know, his own musical tastes. He liked drum and bass, but he had a much wider sort of uh, musical canvas, whereas Shy is completely obsessed with this one form of music and what it what it represents. But I think historically speaking, I mean, I think something interesting to him about that feeling of, you know, the sort of... Um, 90s kind of feeling of invincibility to which Shai's sort of fallen through the cracks. There's an amazing moment, isn't there, when he's having a, a fight, you know, again, it's a memory of a fight that he's got into almost unwittingly. And he smells on a, on a, there's a posh boy who he's having the fight with and he smells the CK1 on him. And I thought it was such a brilliant detail because it meant you were there, you were actually smelling it and you thought, yes, that was the 90s. Oh, I love that. Yeah, the other bit's great. Um, for me, it was Lynx Africa was the kind of 10 years later mm. the boy smell. These are yes. terrifying Proustian <laughs> aromas you're bringing up here. Can I, I just ask one slightly veer <laughs> off, but come back to something you you you, you mentioned, Lamorna. Just, just one last thing, really, which is that you talked about reading differently when you're reviewing something. Can you tell us a little more about that? I mean, that's a really interesting idea to me. Yeah, I suppose because 
it's a shame in a way you have this sense that you know it has to go somewhere in the end so I'm thinking about structure as I'm going I'm plotting it more like mm-hmm. w- what my piece will be in response to it I'm probably thinking about comparisons more I'm literally writing bits of it down on pieces of paper and jotting things down um but I do also have a sense that my first version and I I don't worry about this when I'm just reading for pleasure, but I have a sense when I'm reviewing that I often get things wrong the first time around and I have to read things twice, which is much easier when it's a book like Shy compared to, say, John Foster's Septology, which you just can't like so long. Oh, sure. Um, right. But <laughs> yeah, and I, but I also think then the other way around that I was talking to someone else who was actually uh, review, who he, re- he reviewed Shy as well a bit later, and he was saying that he had this initial sense which was he he wasn't so sure about the book and then in his review found that he was enjoying it more and it and it's almost like you work out your feelings about the book through writing it so in some ways I feel really lucky when I get to review something because just by putting your stronger opinions that you might say to someone in a pub down on paper you have to back them up and so you start to become more generous or you start to feel um I don't know to have a richer understanding of the book through doing that Yes, I agree. And 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 you're you're so right. As well as interviewing, I'm I'm also reviewing it. I have read it sort of now three times and my feelings towards it have really changed, not in terms of that sort of basic critical line of whether you, you know, sorry to to bring it to this level, but whether you give a kind of thumbs up or thumbs down, but just it complicated the the narrative so much knowing what was coming. I mean, that's again, a very basic thing to say, but when you have a book that is, is about a literal journey, uh, albeit a very short one over the course of three hours uh, and and really not very far at all. But you still, knowing what's coming, really changes the way you read, doesn't it? Yeah, no, it absolutely does. It's funny also, um, I've started, someone said to me that as a reviewer, you write, you have your interest and they'll come up again and again and you're often asking the same questions. Mm. And I balked at that and was like, no. And then realised uh, another review I did recently where I was looking again at the way that animals have this sort of transcendent quality um, in John Berger, actually, and then realised that, and I put it in the review, that in Lahaine, my favourite moment, probably one of my favourite moments in any film, is when this cow turns up in a tower block and it shifts the way that the character feels. And so I realised I'm responding similarly, maybe looking for the same things, looking for transcendent qualities or strangeness or moments that take you out of the narrative flow or shift the direction oh Um, by the way that's one of the things one loves about reading a really good review and this is a really good review I thought so interesting but I I read that and thought god I must go back and watch Lahaine again and remember that bit (laughs) and it just always sends you in in other directions doesn't it yeah and actually I remembered Lahaine wrong because I thought that it was a horse that passes through the tower blocks but it's actually a cow Michael, are we really intriguing you? Are you going to immediately rush and read this book? I am intrigued. I've only read Grief and I thought that was very curious and strange. But I came to it from that opposite point of view, from the one you just mentioned, Lamorna, of of not having to read it for any particular purpose or deadline or anything like that. So I came to it with all the kind of praise echoing in my ears. And I, I, that put me off, I got to say. But yeah. I actually I actually will pick this up. It sounds fascinating. Um, just Just... Thinking about the trilogy, and it, it's it's a loose trilogy, and I I have sort of taken Francis Bacon out of it, although it's by no means unrelated uh, to to the rest of his writing. But do you think over the course of these three books, do you think he has told us something 
important or interesting or original about boys and masculinity and growing up and trauma and I suppose also polyphony in novels? I think definitely about boys and masculinity and about because his characters they're not even shy who has these difficulties who is this boyish figure he still has this hmm, I don't describe it that it's not entirely masculine it's not what we think of the stereotype of masculinity I tell you what I'd be really interested in is I'd love to see him take shy on to the age of 22 23 because when I think about it I think um, men have some young men have a really hard time at that point looking back on what happened in those teenage years particularly mm. now and when you got things wrong but you now have this adult head to look back on it and, and the shame how you go really on the starts world. to go I mean there's shame yeah. there's an awful lot of shame in shy but of course you feel it, it's intensified because the things he's done are the things he's done yeah yeah if I was to take something about masculinity in it is that you get the double of shy you see what he's done but you also see this creative interesting sensitive figure underneath and I think you always get that. I mean, I've worked with I worked with teenagers teenagers for quite a few years, and you get the bravado and you get the sort of bossiness. But then you get maybe a kid to write or to tell you about music they love, and there's so much more going on. And so I suppose that's what he's doing really well. And it does feel like there's a political motivation to Porter's work, which is like, look, people are more complex than you think. And and he has this real sense of people being good. I think I think there's a real humanism in in his writing, and I mean that in a really positive way. Lamorna, thank you so much for coming to talk to us uh, about Shy and about Max Porter and about everything else in between. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been great. Still to come on the show, Jonathan Taylor on the uses and abuses of narrative. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Michael Keynes, and I'm here to tell you that storytelling is everywhere. It's on that packet of cookies where the manufacturer seeks to tell you about their story. It's menacingly prevalent in politics, not least when it comes to the disseminating of nationalistic or racially defined myths. It's in every journalistic essay that deploys a personal anecdote as a means of broaching the theme that then turns out to be the real subject of the piece. And as it happens, there is a review in the TLS this week that does begin with this otherwise rather overused device of the personal anecdote. And as a TLS editor, I'm afraid that my instinct would be to cut out such mundane matter. But the review I'm talking about happens to be the work of Jonathan Taylor, who teaches creative writing at the University of Leicester, and who is in this case very knowingly recalling the time he was invited to give a talk to students taking a master's degree in brand management. These were students, Dr. Taylor found, who already knew about Aristotle, who knew about conflicts and epiphanies, having studied how these things work, not in modernist short stories or Shakespearean drama, but in a well-known brand of smoothies. Jonathan Taylor joins us now to talk about the pervasive art and problem of storytelling, as presented in the latest book from Peter Brooks, the distinguished Yale professor of comparative literature, a book called Seduced by Story, The Use and Abuse of Narrative. Jonathan, thank you for coming on the podcast. And thank you for your terrific review of Peter Brooks's new book. Uh, first off, what exactly is it that Professor Brooks thinks is problematic about storytelling? I think he's... Um written a sort of um, dark sequel to the first book he wrote, Reading for Plot, when he talks about the sort of magic of storytelling and the, the way it's propelled by desire and the compulsion that people have to read stories. But actually, in this book, he's talking about how that compulsion can be used to sort of amoral ends, really, that there's nothing inherently good about storytelling. And it can be used um, in all sorts of contexts for all sorts of ends. So he's not sort of saying that storytelling is bad or good. He's saying that um, it can be either or, or both. The idea, I think, that power of storytelling, which, you know, the first book's partly about, can be used in all sorts of ways. And it, um, uh, maybe uh, to use um, Marx's metaphor, that um, that power is in danger of being a sorcerer who's lost control of his spells and that we've um, ended up with a situation where storytelling is everywhere, of course it is, but that, that power has been used in all sorts of different ways and all sorts of different quite disturbing contexts at times. Well, I suppose it's really clear, isn't it, throughout history? I mean, just one example, every totalitarian state starts with a story, doesn't it? Absolutely, you know, and um, uh, I was thinking, although he doesn't mention this explicitly, I was thinking of Mein Kampf, of course, which is um, uh, a story, and mm. and it's a sort of founding text of of what happened sort of um, a couple of decades later. I think it's a a really compelling idea. I sort of um, and that there is there is certainly something about brands, as as you mentioned at the start, Michael. You know, but um, uh, capitalism and global capitalism has um, woken up in the last sort of 20 or so years to that um, amazing power of storytelling and that every brand has its story every um, social 
social media company has its storyteller. You know, CEOs are storytellers, aren't they? And um, uh, adverts are mini stories. So I think the kind of um, the idea that capitalism has has got hold of this power. I think that probably is that probably is true. Do you it's, know, it's very much on my mind because I was telling Michael that I've, I've been on my travels recently and they took me at one point to London where I stayed in a hotel. I have to name it, otherwise the story doesn't work, but I promise. This is not product placement or a paid advert, I promise. Uh, but the chain is called Citizen M. And when you go into the room, the telly is already switched on and it says, welcome, Citizen Alex, in a, in a kind of embrace of egalitarianism. I was totally part of it. And I also noticed that it has a kind of stripped back aesthetic. The rooms are quite sort of no frills, very comfortable, but no frills. So one of the things it doesn't have, because it's very modern, uh, is an ironing board. But when you are in the corridor, you may you notice a sign that you may avail yourself of ironing heaven, which I, I never went to find ironing heaven. But I think it must just be a room at the, with an ironing board, presumably. I mean, I hoped it might mean <laughs> somebody was there to do your ironing for it, but I don't think it did mean that. But this, but it was just, you were sort of drenched in story. And I suppose one of the interesting things about that, and you mentioned that, you know, the well-known brand of smoothies, is that either you like that, or if you don't, you just get very irritated. But it's a bit of a gamble for advertisers, isn't it? Uh, funny enough, that brings to mind something that struck me while writing the book was what he doesn't talk about quite so much is is the omnipresence of poetry. That poetry is everywhere. And it's something that I, I often talk to my students about, actually, that um, the power of metaphor and the power of simile, again, has been corporatized and, um, and branded and so on and so forth. And this idea we have that poetry is some kind of little marginal concern um, of small publishing and so on and so forth is nonsense because clearly like politicians and corporations and adverts use poetry all the time it's and poetic techniques all the time whether it's good poetry or not is neither here nor there the same with stories whether actually good stories that smoothies are telling is is another matter um but they are they're effective in their own terms so Jonathan, I mean, thinking about this power of storytelling in, in the wider world also makes me think about the power of storytelling in, in avowed works of fiction, which you bring into your review. Uh, we've just been talking to Lamorna Ash about Max Porter's new book, uh, which I can see as this this lived in extraordinary kind of world. Um, how do we differentiate, though, in general between the power of storytelling in that context and this broader one. Does Peter Brooks talk about this difference? He does, and um, uh, he has a really sort of interesting sort of couple of chapters on this where he talks about the way in which somehow reading novels is different to listening to the story from a politician or from a brand that novel readers are very sophisticated and that they have a double consciousness where on the one hand, you read Middlemarch, Bleak House in a totally immersive way and you're totally buying into the um, fiction of the novel in the as if but unconsciously at the same time you know it's fiction you know that you're buying into the lie in that way and that double consciousness he thinks is incredibly valuable because it's a sort of inbuilt 
skepticism. So you enjoy it entirely immersively, but at the same time, there is a sort of almost Brechtian kind of skepticism that's going on in another part of your mind. Um, and obviously, um, being Peter Brooks, there's a lot of um, psychological and Freudian metaphors as part of his um, discussion. And it is a sort of unconscious scepticism going on. I think it's a really powerful idea, actually, that we read novels with that kind of double consciousness. And clearly, like, novels post-Middlemarch are very conscious of that sort of um, idea. I, it, it made me think about, about how interesting it is to think about, and I know it's a problematic term, uh, autofiction, which it seems to me one of the things that it tries to do is make that artificiality of the author, character, text, real world uh, much more elided and much more complicated. So it's not it matters to just having, uh, you know, autobiographical material in your novel it's it's the matter of what you you say this character who might or might not have the same name as the author really is what is the status of a fictional character and it seems to me you're, you're right I mean it's the people are doing very interesting things with it in contemporary fiction aren't they obviously one of the things that I'm really interested in is, is memoir and autofiction and and memoir I think always has that weird sort of um, almost wave-like formation where memoirs often start extremely immersively at a particular moment in a particular scene and then pan out um, a few pages on and then pan back in and so on and so forth. And and that a lot of memoirs work like that. Memoirs, and as you say, autofiction in a slightly different way, sort of play with that sort of double consciousness all the time. But, and nothing's ever 100% immersive. Um, even a Shakespeare play is never hundred percent immersive. There's always there's always that kind of slight Brechtian um, distance at times. I, that's one of the really interesting things I think about this Peter Brooks approach, isn't it? Is that it doesn't necessarily take some kind of conscious nudge on the part of the author. Um, mm. That the, there's a built-in sort of, as you're saying, sort of Brechtian quality to this that you can't if you're holding a book something seriously wrong if you think that is the world <laughs> uh, you know and on the other hand you know that if an author as alex is saying is pushing towards this kind of idea of oh no this is this, this is nakedly my life i'm barely pretending this is fiction at all that that's sort of pressing up against the glass but of course it can't cross that line and part of that particular feel comes from that that pressure maybe that direction and i think what his i think what peter brooks's point is is that total immersiveness where you try and efface the fictionality. You you efface the kind of materiality of a book, or you're in a Hollywood cinema and um, you're in darkness, and all you see is the screen. So total immersiveness is actually dangerous. It's actually politically dangerous because when you start to try and um, persuade people that it really is real um, and there is no um, double consciousness involved, that's when some something dangerous happens and, and I think Brecht says something similar you know but that sort of bourgeois realism really can be can be actually politically dangerous because you you start to believe that um you know you're watching a Hollywood movie in a cinema surrounded in darkness um Dolby surround sound huge screen and you start to actually believe oh my god spider-man exists <laughs> 
yeah. or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, if it's you really... Fall... Sorry, go on. Sorry, sorry. It's really interesting. I guess the, the title of the book you d- totally hints, hints at this and you, you're talking about Freud and etc. But it's desire as well. It's desire on the part of the reader or the viewer for that sort of total identification and immersion. And I certainly know that when I feel, find myself really enjoying a novel, I actually want to be in its world, which I guess is dangerous, isn't it? Yeah, and I think um, the book doesn't quite answer that question of of that sort of, um, um, and maybe that's, that will be the third in a kind of unofficial trilogy, um, that, that answer of, well, it's incredibly powerful and seductive, as as the title suggests, and we want to be immersed. So, how does that balance with also, you know, keeping one foot out of the immersion, or or you know, so most of you is immersed, but but you've got you've still got a, a foot on the beach. That's a bad metaphor, but what that means is that potentially that. Um, really fully immersive texts and stories might be actually more seductive, more um, powerful in some ways. And you can see that, obviously, he's um, talking about religions and um, also political religions and so on and so forth and, and their danger. So maybe they're, they're actually in some ways more powerful than novels. I think part of the answer you you provided in your review, I didn't really know how much this you agree with this point from from Brooks himself, but it's the value of critique maybe is the answer to how we grapple with our own desire. Story gives us something we want, whether we're more prone to it or not nowadays, or you know, it's it's spread out and pervaded different contexts where it, it wasn't there before. We were getting something, uh, broadly speaking, you know, from studying the humanities and learning about how critique works. And there's the basis for defending the humanities there, if, say, one ever needed to do that. Is that fair? Yeah, and I think um, uh, his... So there's a kind of scepticism there, whereby what he's saying, as you say, is, is that literary criticism and criticism of all kinds becomes immensely important in dismantling and challenging some of these really dominant stories, but also from a personal perspective, gaining that kind of double consciousness, even when you're listening to the most powerful politicians or reading the most powerful newspapers or or buying the most powerful sort of brands, that that scepticism or critique or, or criticism that you gain from humanities actually is incredibly important in standing back from from these myths. And I sort of, I totally buy that, actually, in some ways. Uh, um, maybe buy isn't the right word in this context. But I totally, I totally, I totally get that. Um, because I think that one of the things that is important in, in my field in teaching creative writing, that, you know, that actually telling good stories is one of the things that I teach, and that's incredibly important, but also thinking about how stories work in a critical way is also important. There wouldn't be any point doing creative writing at a university. Um, that actually there is a kind of, yeah, that you kind of try and sort of encourage a double consciousness on the part of students, whereby they are both creative writers 
but also alongside that that they they've got to know the mechanics and what they're doing and what and and think critically about what they're doing and reflectively about what they're doing um and i do i do believe that's what makes a i mean i don't want to be hierarchical but what makes a really good writer is someone who can who, who has both i think one of the things that i guess is sort of around this and i don't know the extent to which peter brooks goes into it or what your or indeed what your views are but we're also talking about who gets to tell the stories um you, you mentioned hierarchies there who gets a seat at the storytelling table and that leads you into the kind of idea of the canon doesn't it and, and what becomes a mainstream of stories and what is marginalized does he have anything uh interesting to say about that i wonder most of his examples from the novels are very canonical. Um, obviously, Henry James, George Eliot, and and so on and so forth. So he's he's very much, I think, talking about the canon and holding that as as texts that do play with double consciousness. But um, but no, absolutely, and there's um certainly like one of the problems i think with the corporatization of stories is that clearly um the people who own the right to tell these very dominant stories are big global corporations ce and also um major politicians um and they they become the sort of dominant voices i think in um this what he calls storification of reality but as you say those stories that saturate our reality are going to have bigger voices if they've got more money behind them. Mm. And I think that's really important. Is a really important point that he makes. Even storytellers need, need big backers, shall we say. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's obviously true, you know, in, in, in many ways that we, we are some, the stories that we, we hear most on TV are, Obviously, adverts and then politicians and and so on and so forth. But that um, uh, it's uh, and to tell stories um, in on on TV on Netflix and so on and so forth, you need a lot of money. You need a lot. Clearly, you know, um, you need a lot of money to make a Hollywood movie. So um, it is it is a sort of there's this massive weight of of um, finance behind the most powerful stories that we hear every day. God, it's interesting because that makes me think of the sort of box setification of TV via streaming services often and how sometimes something becomes popular so more seasons are added to it and it exhausts its own power of story doesn't it? i mean stories just sometimes mm. do collapse under their own weight and you're thinking gosh this is just should have stopped a lot sooner knowing when to limit a story it's really important part of storytelling isn't it i i totally agree with that alex actually um i've been thinking that a lot recently that that stories don't know how to end anymore uh, mm, I think that's a, mm. as in a way that's a slightly different um uh, book, but they, they just can't end and that they become um uh, soaps and um there is and and endings endings are are really difficult because clearly like um well 
um, brands don't want to end, but they have a kind of, they often have a sort of very tele teleological story whereby we started uh, on this tiny little scale. I'm thinking about the smoothies. Um, we started on this tiny little scale in the market and look at us now, we're a huge global um, company, but we still care about that, those tiny little people in the market. Um, and um, so there is a kind of teleology there, but it's a sort of never-ending teleology where where we can just get bigger and bigger and bigger. I was just going to say, I fear we've all been watching the same very unsatisfying Netflix adaptations or reading <laughs> the same unsatisfying books. That's what I'm getting at. But I mean, and obviously we could definitely go on talking about endings. <laughs> but it's a whole other Peter Brooks book, I think, about how you round out a story. Um, we must actually end i think right there all of us plunged into this don quixote world terrifying yeah, we, we, but we know when to end so jonathan thank you very much for giving us so much to think about about the power of story That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Lamorna Ash and Jonathan Taylor. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast, produced by Lucy Ditchmont. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Michael Keynes and from me, Alex Clark, goodbye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.